Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest and your guide, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. So just when we thought the, the pandemic response was completely over and done with as far as the government was concerned, the CDC last week updates its guidance both on indoor ventilation and masking in public spaces. And I, I want to get into the specifics in a minute, but uh, <laughs> why did it take three and a half years? That was frustrating. Um, everybody who works in the field of indoor air ventilation in particular uh, has been aware that this is a major way that viruses in general, like influenza and, and SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID, they transmit, as well as many other respiratory viruses. And to improve indoor ventilation really decreases the chance that you're going to get infected if you're indoors for a period of time. So it was really good finally to see this. Okay, let, let's start with the air filtration recommendations. Um, th- these are just guidelines, not rules, but the CDC is recommending that shared indoor spaces uh, turn over the air a minimum of five times per hour and systems that recirculate air, which most heating and cooling systems do, be equipped with a filter that is rated MERV 13 or better. Uh, What do we think about the the actual adequacy of the guidance? Well, it's going to clearly help. Um, You know, a lot of the newer buildings already have this built in and have good ventilation. Um, there's no guarantee, of course, that a newer building will, but a lot of them do now. So that's that's good news for the new buildings, but most buildings aren't real new. Uh, if you go back 10, 20, 30 years, you don't have the same type of air filtration uh, and air exchanges. The key thing here is, is the um, increase to five air exchanges per hour. That's not a lot, but it's a lot more than a lot of places have right now. And, for example, to put that in perspective, if somebody's in airborne isolation in a hospital, you're going to want to have, ideally, at least 12 air exchanges per hour, maybe 10 at the least, but at least 12 would be good to protect other people in the hospital from getting infected. So bringing this up to five really helps a lot for non-hospital settings. So I'm really pleased to see that. Without these kind of guidelines, um, you're going to see people not putting a lot of effort into making sure there's enough air exchanges. The MERV-13 is the, as you were saying, for recirculating air, it just filters out a lot more. And so having a higher standard for this recirculating air filtration really will help a lot too. So here on my campus, um, you know, we've got lots of older buildings 
and they've been trying hard to make sure that they can bring these older buildings up to some kind of air exchange standards that um, we'd we'd wanted. Uh, but it's very difficult and it's expensive, um, and this is going to be a problem for a lot of places that have older buildings. Right. This is one of the kind of frustrating things about seeing the guidance come out three and a half years into the pandemic is that earlier there was the political will to move heaven and earth for pandemic response to to pass multi-trillion dollar appropriations through Congress. There could have been a surge of government subsidy for retrofitting buildings that, that you know, are shared by people during the workday to improve air circulation across the board. Uh, now we're just kind of left with a, a pamphlet from the CDC and no money behind it. Welcome to how we do things. Um, it, uh, as I said, we've known that how important indoor air is for a long time. There just hasn't been the money behind the will to do it. And without that, it's just not going to get done. It's, it, as I said, it's, it's expensive for institutions uh, to do this. And um, frankly, I'm, I'm just looking forward to finally, I'm delighted to finally see something um, with the standards, then maybe this will light a fire under different places to, um, to really improve their air safety. Well, it's certainly something you can turn around and, and show your boss or, or your facilities manager or your landlord or whoever's in charge of the air you breathe when, when you're at work. Right, and it's going to be great for air engineers. Uh, they're they're going to be needed now a lot more. So this, it, it, and Brian, um, it, we've been frustrated for a long time, but I'm I'm going to look on this as the glass is half full and say that finally we've got some <laughs> At least one of us is. Uh, I want to turn to the other CDC guidance uh, that that was updated last week, which was uh, equally, if not more, flummoxing to me. So uh, CDC is now recommending masking on public transport at all times, although they do not specify the type of mask or the rating of the mask. Um, in places that have medium levels of COVID hospitalization, which is a new metric that the CDC is using. It used to be they were trying to estimate community spread. Now they're just looking at how many beds are used up in the hospital. They are recommending high-risk people and their close contacts mask. And in places with high levels of COVID hospitalization admissions, they're recommending everyone wear them in public and that high-risk people should additionally isolate themselves from contact with other people. Um, What's your overall take on, on this masking rubric? Well, Let's start from basic principles, and that is that the science behind wearing a good mask, N95, for example, KN95, KF94, if you're wearing one of these that fits well, you're going to significantly reduce the chances of you getting infected from somebody else and from you infecting somebody else. Remember that with COVID, the virus transmits very easily, at least 24 hours before somebody becomes symptomatic. So masks do work. From that basis, then everything else should really follow. If you don't want to get COVID, regardless of if you're at high risk or not, if you don't want to get COVID, wearing a mask in a situation where there are lots of people crowded, particularly indoors, um, 
makes a lot of sense and should be highly recommended. Uh, that's what we're currently doing. We're saying highly recommended indoors in these settings. What um, is frustrating is the use of hospitalization data. You and I have talked about this many times, but we know that the data we get about how many people are hospitalized, that lags behind what's actually happening in the community by, on average, maybe a couple of weeks. So the data is very good about how many people are being hospitalized. But what, where that breaks down is that we've got a virus circulating now, the Omicron family of, sub, of subvariants, that fortunately don't make people as sick as its predecessor, like Delta and Alpha. Um, so there's, there can be lots of virus circulating in the community, lots of people getting COVID, but it's not going to necessarily reflect in a dramatic increase in hospitalizations, which is wonderful. But using that as a metric that lags behind by a couple of weeks and is not a good metric for how many people are getting COVID in the community really makes it hard for me to understand why we're making a distinction between the level of cases in hospitals. The, the argument for that is a public health argument, and that is that these public health pronouncements are made not for the safety necessarily of the individual, although they, they boil down to that, but what they really do is they're talking about the safety of our healthcare system to care for people who are really sick and require hospitalization. And right now we're not pressed for that. So that's a long answer, but the bottom line is that if you want to prevent getting COVID for any reason, then wearing a good mask that fits well in a place where they're likely rebreathing other people's air that they're expelling, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that seems like worth underlining in bold. These new guidelines do not appear intended to give you a guide to being personally safe. They appear to be intended to keep the hospital system from being overwhelmed, which is a good thing, <laughs> but like different from here's what you need to do to protect yourself. And, and I'm a little worried that doesn't seem very explicit in how the guidance is framed. Well, it, it's, it's a, such a nuanced issue that it's the, the CDC continues to, and frankly, everybody continues to have trouble communicating that from a public health standpoint, we have to have our healthcare facilities, whether they're hospitals or other facilities, uh, being able to care for people who need them. I mean, again, we keep, my mind keeps going back to the spring of 2020 in New York City, and we saw what a catastrophe that is when you can't have a healthcare system caring for people who really desperately need it. So that's clearly the first priority. The of course, the CDC's priority is for giving advice to everybody how to keep themselves safe, and they try to have a foot in both camps, and it's a little difficult to communicate. Uh, but that's one of the dilemmas of communicating public health right now. All right, Dr. Schwartzberg, uh, we're going to have to end early in a few minutes so I can raise some money for KPFA. I did want to squeeze in one or two listener questions from the email inbox. Jan in Petaluma wrote in about masks. Jan says they are 77 years old and they recall you saying that the N95 mask they use is good for about 40 hours of use. Uh, their question is what to do with the mask in between uses? 
hang it outdoors, indoors, in a plastic bag, in a paper bag? What, what's the best protocol? Just anywhere where you can keep it clean. So in a, in a bag would be fine. Um, just, just somewhere where it's not going to get wet or dirty. If, uh, if I don't want to smell my own breath on the mask the next time I put it on, uh, I find open air or a paper bag is better than a plastic one, which kind of seals everything in. Yeah, and uh, I know my wife just hangs it on uh, on handles in the uh, garage where it's going to be dry and clean. So any, that's a good idea, yeah. We, we have a little key rack next to our front door. <laughs> it's not like dangling masks. No longer a hat. Sign of a, a pandemic. Ask rack. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, next question comes from Sarah, who wrote in from Richmond. Uh, do we know if and when there will be a booster in the fall? She is trying to figure out whether to get boosted now. Apparently, she's eligible, uh, or whether to wait to time something to happen right before uh, some traveling she's doing. Sure. Well, we may know a lot more after today because I think today is the day that the CDC Advisory Committee is meeting to talk about the fall booster. So we may learn a lot more at the end, by the end of the day. Um, there, I think most certainly there will be a fall booster. What it's going to be composed of at this point is not known. Um, it may be either a, um, just a single um, what we call a monovalent vaccine, a single vaccine, or it may contain, like the most recent one, the bivalent, may contain information for two different types of, of uh, SARS-CoV-2. So th those things are still question marks, and which particular subvariants they'll cover remains a question mark. But there will be a vaccine available in the fall. Um, in terms of strategizing whether to get it now as a second booster if you got the bivalent last fall should you get it now i think the things that go into that uh, calculus are how high risk are you and what kind of high risk things will you be doing uh, right now it's recommended or it's not recommended but it's available for people 65 or over because that's a very high risk group or people younger who are immunocompromised so certainly i think if you fall into either of those groups that I would give serious consideration to getting the second bivalent now and then in the fall get the whatever the new um, vaccine is going to be. If you're not in those groups, uh, that is if you're healthy and younger, uh, the need for that second bivalent probably is very low and I would just wait till the um, to the fall. Now all of that said, only about less than 18% of the American population has gotten the bivalent booster and that's a real problem. About just a touch over 40% of people over 65 have gotten the bivalent booster. That's a real big problem because it's older people who are winding up getting much sicker, often hospitalized and dying. And it's especially people who aren't vaccinated at all, but then the next group would be those who haven't received the bivalent booster. So if you're in that group, please get it. Well, uh, just to, to, to temper that, a, a decent number of the people who haven't gotten the booster have gotten COVID in the past year. Uh, it has a comparable effect, right? Absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, I would just look at if you've had COVID, you've had a booster. Mm. That's a good shorthand. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.
That'll do it for this morning. It's a somewhat abbreviated edition because we needed some space during the live show to raise money for KPFA. If you ever want to pitch in, you can donate at kpfa.org. If you do, mention Corona Calls in the comments box when you make your pledge. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.